welcome back or welcome to the Andre Fratticelli podcast. For my first episode, I am extremely honored to interview someone that I look up to, the legendary and iconic softball coach, Kirk Walker. Kirk started his career as an assistant coach at UCLA in 1984 under the legendary softball coach, Sharon Bacchus. He then left in 1995 to take the job at Oregon State, where he would do tremendous things with that program. And then he would come back to UCLA in 2012 until the present time with current UCLA softball coach, Darcy Inouye Perez. Kirk Walker on the staff of UCLA has captured six national championships, six Pac-12 championships, 14 Women's College World Series appearances. He was a three-time Staff of the Year award, over an 800 winning percentage, and while at UCLA has never missed an NCAA tournament. And as amazing as those numbers are, in my opinion, the work that he did at Oregon State really just stands out to me. The way that not only he turned around that program, but really turned around the whole culture and environment of the athletic department. You know, when he was going into the program and the athletic department, it, it was it was full of negativity. It was full of, you know, consecutive down years, back to back to back. And what he was able to do at Oregon State is absolutely tremendous. Eight 40-win seasons, two Coach of the Year awards, the first Pac-12 championship in any women's sport at Oregon State. He's the winningest coach in program history and the fifth winningest coach overall in any sport, male or female, at Oregon State. And it really is, it's, it's such an amazing feat to take what he learned at UCLA and to build up such a successful program now taken over by Laura Berg in Oregon State. And really, I think that what makes Kirk Walker one of the best is his ability to put the person before the player and to get the best out of his players. You know, he really strives on creating a competitive culture, you know, a fun culture, which doesn't mean that it has to be easy, right? Finding a way to motivate his players so that he can get what he wants done. And it, you know, and that all comes under the, the umbrella of what he calls a healthy culture. And I love that term. I use the winning culture. And he said, no, I think it's more of a healthy culture. And that's what I'm going to use from now on. And, you know, his work with softball is obviously tremendous. He has tremendous amounts of success. But Kirk as a human being is is far more amazing you know, and like I said, he was a mentor. He is a mentor of mine. He has helped me come out and be authentic with my sexuality. And he has done it hundreds of times with other people in the world of sports and the world outside of sports through, you know, he's a board member of a foundation. He co-created a group that brings together LGBT individuals in the world of sports. 
you know, and in 2005, Kirk had a meeting with his Oregon State staff and players, and he said that my partner and I are going to adopt a baby girl, and, you know, that was kind of his way of coming out, and he became, you know, the first openly gay male in Division One sports, but he also became, you know, kind of the prime example on how to handle everything and you know he didn't like the attention at first you know he struggled with it but then he realized that you know what i'm gonna embrace this figure and he's done an absolutely tremendous job i can't speak enough of how kind of a heart he is and you know he's he's a great human being he's a fantastic softball coach and really, with that being said, let's just jump right into this conversation with UCLA softball coach, Kirk Walker. So, Kirk, what's up? Thanks for being here. Sure. I'm glad to uh, have a conversation with you. Yeah. Um, you know, looking through my notes and stuff and everything that you accomplished, I mean, obviously, I know that you have a tremendous success in softball, but kind of putting it all in perspective, you've had a tremendous coaching career i mean six national championships and correct me if i'm wrong seven pac 12 championships um 15 college road series and then you go to oregon state and you're the winningest coach in program history and the fifth in any sport so you know what what does it feel like when you know people kind of tell you that you're one of the greatest of all time or you know you just kind of think about your years and you know everything that you accomplished well um you know those uh those were obviously um some great opportunities for me uh coaching wise and and um all the stats you mentioned i think are pretty accurate um uh, from that standpoint, uh, collegiately, and then I also coached um, four national championships uh, as a head coach with the women's majors level, right. as well as a national champion as a uh, youth level as an assistant. So, um, I, I, I've just been very fortunate to be around really successful programs and uh, successful athletes, which in turn has really instilled in me, um, I guess, just kind of the mindset and the. Uh, just the, the, the focus that it takes to kind of continue to kind of keep building success. Um, you can't guarantee national championships, but you can guarantee success if you're talking about success being a team that functions well, that trains hard, and that is prepared to um, sacrifice for the team. So those are the only things that you really kind of have in your control, the effort and attitude of, of kind of what you're doing. And if you surround yourself with good people and surround yourself with good assistants and recruit good talent, um, those are the kind of things that, that can happen. Um, Sharon Backus was, was the architect of the program at UCLA and the dynasty that was developed. And, you know, her very simple, very simple rule of thumb was um, recruit good talent and have high standards. And that was really um, kind of what I, I grew up in and that's kind of what I've just kind of always kind of uh, lived by. Yeah. Um, I was, I was going to add, that's great. I was going to ask you this later, but you know, since you brought it up, how do you sustain a winning culture? I mean, 
I think one of the stats I saw at UCLA, you've never missed an NCAA tournament. You know, and every year you have one of the top recruiting classes. So how do you sustain, you know, for the good part of 18 years and before that, how do you sustain a winning culture? Well, the interesting thing is, is you, you can't really necessarily say you sustain a winning culture. You, you sustain a healthy culture. Um, mm-hmm. The winning takes care of itself. So you really can't say this is going to be a winning culture versus this is going to be a losing culture. Um, culture is something that you have to work on on a daily basis. And I think what I, I certainly learned um, through the programs that have been around is that, as I said, you recruit talent, you recruit um, athletes, um, and then you work very hard at, at how you um, interact and treat each other. And uh, what, what are the goals and the priorities of the program? If that clarity about what's important to the program, and those are the things that you keep your standards high. And if you're doing that um, and making uh, decisions about success based on treating people the right way, um, you're going to have a good culture. If the culture is good, it will allow for success with talent. And that's when winning happens. So I think if you don't have the talent, you can still have a successful culture. Um, you can still have a quote unquote winning culture. Um, but if you don't have the talent, you, there's going to be at some point you're not going to, you know, beat teams that, that have more talent that also have culture. So a winning culture to me is, is a little bit misleading because it just it's having a healthy, positive culture for success. And if you have talent and you're recruiting talent to be in that situation, um, it will lead to a high level of winning. Right. So that's such a great point. So when you say a healthy culture, you're talking about, you know, the standards. So you can have all the talent in the world. And I'm sure you've been around teams that that's kind of, or maybe you haven't, um, that had all the talent in the world, but there just wasn't a healthy culture. How do you, how do you build that? Or how do you go about talking to the team about that? Well, you know, um, culture is one of those things that um, everybody wants. Everybody talks about how important it is, but um, not everybody spends the time and works on it. And the one thing else, I've been around plenty of teams that were very talented and didn't have great culture. And and sometimes the culture never turned around in that year. Uh, And other times the the culture wasn't good in the fall and and you've set down some principles on how you're going to move forward, then it develops. But the one thing that, that really is important is culture is not, you know, is not doing a team building exercise and carrying a log up a hill and or a one-time meeting where you say, this is, we're going to have team culture and now we go forward. It, it is a daily process about how you interact, how you treat each other. And there's some things you can do on a daily basis with, that kind of lead to healthy culture. Um, and it's those standards that become important. And it's whether you're winning or losing you you commit to those things and and some very simple things you know when you're meeting with your team you meet shoulder to shoulder in a circle you don't meet in a huddle when people are standing behind other people because that creates a culture of you're able to hide or or not make eye contact with people um you you have a culture of appreciation where you make sure you have the opportunity for your players to recognize each other um, at the end of a week or end of a hard weekend or a hard uh, you know week of practice 
um, and recognize each other for the things that you do right, that they did well, that they did well. Um, you know, I think anytime that you can get your athletes to look at each other, at what they're doing right and what they appreciate about each other, you will start to then create a culture that their athletes want to be recognized by their teammates. They're going to start doing the right things. It's a very um, simple way to start recognizing what's, what's good and what's right. And then obviously keeping high standards for um, interaction. So obviously how you communicate with each other, uh, making eye contact when you communicate and keeping your language positive. So um, respect is a big part of how culture gets built. Uh, culture doesn't happen without trust. So ultimately, mm-hmm. when you say what's a winning culture, what's a culture of success, it's, it's building trust um, and, and building clarity. If, if you're doing those two things, the culture will kind of have its own um, life. And it's kind of like an amoeba. It may, it may be a culture that's very much about, you know, laughter. It may be a culture that's very much about um, intense uh, focus. It might be, you know, that actually how it comes into play is going to vary depending on the, your personalities. But the culture that you ultimately want to have is that everybody is focused on a single goal and everybody's willing to focus on doing the right things to get there. And that's, that's something that you just, um, you have to instill every day. Wow. Wow. Um, we're, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna get back to that. There, there's so much good things here. Um, but you know, just backtrack a little bit. Let's talk about when you were growing up, you know, it was, how, how was that experience for you? Um, uh, in terms of, just in terms of my childhood or in terms of yeah, growing up coaching wise sports, you know, with your family. So, um, I, I grew up in a, a, a very solid, uh, family, a middle-class family that was, um, very healthy situation. I was very fortunate and had two older brothers and a younger sister. All of them were athletes. Um, I think I probably, ironically, I probably competed, uh, less, in athletics than the, uh, the other three. My two older brothers were very big in baseball and football and, um, and played obviously through their whole high school careers. Neither one went on to play at the collegiate level. Um, I was very involved with my sister's athletics, her, her softball. So at a very young age, when I was probably uh, 12, 13, I, I was around her teams all the time and kind of helping my mom run those teams and be around the teams and just helping being around it. So I kind of grew up around the sport and actually when my sister was actually picked up to be on a travel ball team, a club team, when she was uh, 13, I was two years older. I was 15 and I started to do the same thing with that club team, be around it, help at practices, kind of be around with the coaches. The coaches brought me in and kind of, they loved having me around and uh, within Another year, um, kind of was in a coaching role and helping out officially. And at age 17, I was a part of my first national championship, um, ASA championship. So I was immediately in a program that my sister was recruited for. And that program was very similar to what I experienced at UCLA, which was about having a healthy culture and about uh, recruiting talent and having high standards. So um, I, I was very, very fortunate to be, like I said, around some great programs and great mentors and coaches that really understood um, what it meant to kind of build a successful program, a successful team. 
Right. So was, was, that was really my experience. And I wasn't playing or competing. I was really coaching. And, and when I came into UCLA two years after that, um, as a freshman, um, you know, I was kind of the same thing. I just got connected to the program and uh, was an undergraduate coach on full scholarship uh, by my second year. And uh, the kind of the rest was history. I didn't start competing as an athlete really competitively in softball until after I'd been coaching for a number of years. So I, I kind of came at it a little bit backwards. Yeah. Was, was softball as involved in, you know, were, were males involved in softball back then as they are now, or was it more of kind of a unique thing for, you know, a man to be a softball coach or to play softball or, you know, whatever it may be? No, I mean, staff pitch uh, has always been uh, a, a huge sport um, in terms of uh, across the country. There's a high level of, of athletics, but obviously I didn't really play men's fast pitch. So I came into it from coaching. But, you know, at the at the level that I was coaching at the club level, there was a I mean, most of the coaches out there were were male. There was a lot of male coaches. And, and so being a male around the sport was not necessarily unusual. Um, from a coaching standpoint, but, uh, you know, when I, when I started at UCLA, there weren't as many male coaches at the collegiate level professionally okay. as there were women, but there were certainly plenty of men that were coaching high school and club ball, but just not necessarily at the collegiate level. Right. So you get to UCLA and what is, you know, what is kind of your, mindset in the sense of being with a program that's had such tremendous success you know I mean what, what is it like to kind of be on that coaching staff and the talks that you have every single day you know and the recruits coming through kind of walk me through the culture of UCLA softball well you know it was uh, interesting because obviously um in, in the beginning, uh, when I started, it was the fall of, of 1983. And uh, the first year that the NCA offered uh, became uh, an opportunity for women was 1982. So before wow. that, it had been AIAW. It wasn't an NCA recognized um, existence for women. So it was really not long after Title IX uh, in 1976, where we started to see a real change in women's athletics. So when I came in in 1983, uh, 1984 was my first season, it, it was a different environment. Obviously, the program at UCLA, they had won a national title in 1982, uh, and they had, had been a, a pretty dominant program. But college athletics was not a big deal, certainly on the women's side. There wasn't television. There wasn't ESPN covering events. Um, I didn't know anything about UCLA softball in particular, because um, it just wasn't that big. There was there was not that many programs in the country, and there was no media coverage for it. So, um, so I didn't really know going in exactly what it was. But I I've grown up around athletics. I've grown around competitive people. So when I started out with the program, I I offered my services to come out to throw batting practice and be around and help in the fall, and that was a great opportunity. And I was around these great athletes. Um, one of the seniors on the team I had known, she was an umpire at my sister's uh, rec league, park league. So I'd known her as an athlete for a number of years and as an umpire. And then um, a couple of the players that were also going in as freshmen, I knew because I had coached uh, against them in club ball. So 
but I didn't have any expectation of what UCLA softball was going to be about. So for me, it was uh, being around the sport and kind of continuing to kind of feel like I could kind of build a network of people when I was here at this major university it was massive and big. And so it was kind of creating a, a family, creating an opportunity for me to kind of be helpful and be a part of something. And what I learned pretty quickly was, boy, these athletes are pretty amazing. But even more so, these coaches, Sharon Backus and Sue Inquist, are really just um, amazing athletes in their own right, but just incredible women, um, incredible coaches, uh, male or female, that, that really um, had such a great passion for the sport and, and success. So I, it was I, truly just an amazing, every day was a learning opportunity. So they asked me to, to adjust my schedule to travel with them that first year. So then I got to be on the road with them and, and be at, you know, in the airport and talk with them and spend time with them and be around it. And I was able to be on the inside of conversations um, as a freshman that, um, you know, the athletes weren't privy to. So I was really kind of in the mix of things. And uh, by my second year, I was on full scholarship and completely working in the office every day. Um, as you said, you know, talking about recruiting and talking about developing budgets and team building. And I, I was kind of involved in all of that. And, and Sharon, um, I, I can't thank her enough for what she did for me, but, but created that opportunity for me to be involved in those conversations, not just to listen, but to be involved. And so I really, um, was a part of something that was so special and, and, and grew and, and just became so addicted to, um, coaching because it was such an amazing opportunity to just to be a part of it and then to see it play out on the field and see these athletes really grow and foster and we had some some not great years a couple of tough years in there um you know 1985 was a really tough year uh most of the year and then at the end of the year we ended up turning it on strong and coming back and winning a national title but um i learned a lot that year about um team dynamics and, and how people think and people operate and how people respond. So um, it's been, uh, it was an amazing run during those 11 years when I was an undergrad and then when I was hired full time to really become a, such a student of the game. What is, what is the biggest things that Sharon, that you learned from Sharon as far as coaching, as far as life, what is the one thing that she did that kind of separated her from other coaches? Well, she was a, a very unique individual um, and uh, someone that I just have so much respect for. And, and she really evolved during my 11 years when I coached with her. But a couple of things that I really stand out to me is, is having high standards. So she was very, very competitive. So she had a very high standard. And, and if somebody wasn't able to execute, you know, the follow the team rules or the team policies. She had no problem removing them from the team or kind of, you know, disciplining them or just, it didn't matter if it was the best player or, or, you know, somebody that she cared about. Um, personally, she kept the standard in the pro. Sure. I'm glad to uh, have a conversation with you. Yeah. Um, you know, looking through my notes and stuff and everything that you accomplished, I mean, obviously I know, that you have a tremendous coaching career. I mean, six national championships, and correct me if I'm wrong, seven Pac-12 championships, um, 15 college road series, and then you go to Oregon State, and you're the winningest coach in program history, and the fifth in any sport. So 
you know, what, how, what does it feel like when, you know, people kind of tell you that you're one of the greatest of all time, or, you know, you just kind of think about your years and, you know, everything that you accomplished? Well, um, you know, those, uh, those were obviously um, some great opportunities for me, uh, coaching wise, and, and um, all the stats you mentioned, I think are pretty accurate. Um, uh, from that standpoint, uh, collegiately, and then I also coached um, four national championships uh, as a head coach with the women's majors level, right. as well as a national champion as a uh, youth level as an assistant. So um, I, I, I've just been very fortunate to be around really successful programs and uh, successful athletes, which in turn has really instilled in me, um, I guess, just kind of the mindset and the uh, just the, the, the focus that it takes to kind of continue to kind of keep building success. Um, you can't guarantee national championships, but you can guarantee success if you're talking about success being a team that functions well, that trains hard, and that is prepared to um, sacrifice for the team. So those are the only things that you really kind of have in your control, the effort and attitude of, of kind of what you're doing. And if you surround yourself with good people and surround yourself with good assistants and recruit good talent, um, those are the kind of things that, that can happen. Um, Sharon Backus was, was the architect of the program at UCLA and the dynasty that was developed. And, you know, her very simple, very simple rule of thumb was um, recruit good talent and have high standards. And that was really um kind of what I, I grew up in and that's kind of what I've just kind of always kind of uh, lived by. Yeah. Um, I was, I was going to add, that's great. I was going to ask you this later, but you know, since you brought it up, how do you sustain a winning culture? I mean, I think one of the stats I saw at UCLA, you've never missed an NCAA tournament, you know, and every year you have one of the top recruiting classes. So how do you sustain you know, for the good part of 18 years. And before that, how do you sustain a winning culture? Well, the interesting thing is, is you, you can't really necessarily say you sustain a winning culture. You, you sustain a healthy culture. Um, mm -hmm. The winning takes care of itself. So you really can't say this is going to be a winning culture versus this is going to be a losing culture. Um, culture is something that you have to work on on a daily basis. And I think what I, I certainly learned um, through the programs that have been around is that, as I said, you recruit talent, you recruit um, athletes, um, and then you work very hard at, at how you um, interact and treat each other. And uh, what, what are the goals and the priorities of the program? If that clarity about what's important to the program, and those are the things that you keep your standards high. And if you're doing that um, and making uh, decisions about success based on treating people the right way, um, you're going to have a good culture. If the culture is good, it will allow for success with talent. And that's when winning happens. Wow. So I think if you don't have the talent, you can still have a successful culture. Um, you can still have a quote unquote winning culture. Um, but if you don't have the talent, you, there's going to be at some point you're not going to, you know, beat teams that, that have more talent that also have culture. So a winning culture to me is, is a little bit misleading because it's just it's having a healthy, 
positive culture for success. And if you have talent and you're recruiting talent to be in that situation, um, it will lead to a high level of winning. Right. So that's such a great point. So when you say a healthy culture, you're talking about, you know, the standards. So you can have all the talent in the world. And I'm sure you've been around teams that that's kind of, or maybe you haven't, um, that had all the talent in the world, but there just wasn't a healthy culture. How do you, how do you build that? Or how do you go about talking to the team about that? Well, you know, um, culture is one of those things that um, everybody wants. Everybody talks about how important it is, but um, not everybody spends the time and works on it. And right. the one thing else, I've been around plenty of teams that were very talented and didn't have great culture. And, um, and sometimes the culture never turned around in that year. Uh, and other times the, if the culture wasn't good in the fall and, and you've set down some principles on how you're going to move forward, then it develops. But the one thing that, that really is important is culture is not, you know, is not doing a team building exercise and carrying a log up a hill and or a one time meeting where you say this is we're going to have team culture and now we go forward. It, it is a daily process about how you interact, how you treat each other. And there's some things you can do on a daily basis with, that kind of lead to healthy culture. Um, and it's those standards that become important. And it's whether you're winning or losing you you commit to those things and and some very simple things you know when you're meeting with your team you meet shoulder to shoulder in a circle you don't meet in a huddle when people are standing behind other people because that creates a culture of you're able to hide or or not make eye contact with people um you you have a culture of appreciation where you make sure you have the opportunity for your players to recognize each other um, at the end of a week or end of a hard weekend or a hard uh, you know week of practice um, and recognize each other for the things that you do right, that they did well, that they did well. Um, you know, I think any time that you can get your athletes to look at each other, at what they're doing right, and what they appreciate about each other, you will start to then create a culture that their athletes want to be recognized by their teammates. They're going to start doing the right things. It's a very um, simple way to start recognizing what's what's good and what's right. And then obviously keeping high standards for um, interaction. So obviously how you communicate with each other, uh, making eye contact when you communicate and keeping your language positive. So um, respect is a big part of how culture gets built. Uh, culture doesn't happen without trust. So ultimately mm -hmm. when you say what's a winning culture, what's a culture of success, it's, it's building trust um, and, and building clarity. If, if you're doing those two things, the culture will kind of have its own um, life. And it's kind of like an amoeba. It may, it may be a culture that's very much about, you know, laughter. It may be a culture that's very much about um, intense uh, focus. It might be, you know, that actually how it comes into play is going to vary depending on the, your personalities. But the culture that you ultimately want to have is that everybody is focused on a single goal and everybody's willing to focus on doing the right things to get there. And that's, that's something that you just, um, you have to instill every day. Wow. Wow. Um, we're, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna get back to that. There, there's so much good things here. Um, but you know, just backtrack a little bit. Let's talk about when you were growing up, you know, it was, how, how was that experience for you? 
um, uh, in terms of just in terms uh, of my childhood, or in terms of yeah, growing up coaching wise, sports, or, you know, with your family. So um, I I grew up in a, a, a very solid uh, family, a middle class family that was um, very healthy situation. I was very fortunate and had two older brothers and a younger sister. All of them were athletes. Um, I think I probably, ironically, I probably competed uh, less in athletics than the, uh, the other three. My two older brothers were very big in baseball and football and, um, and played, obviously, through their whole high school careers. Neither one went on to play at the collegiate level. Um, I was very involved with my sister's athletics, her, her softball. So at a very young age, when I was probably uh, 12, 13, I was around her teams all the time and kind of helping my mom run those teams and be around the teams and just helping being around it. So I kind of grew up around the sport. And actually, when my sister was actually picked up to be on a travel ball team, a club team, when she was uh, 13, I was two years older, I was 15. And I started to do the same thing with that club team, be around it, help at practices, kind of be around with the coaches. The coaches brought me in and kind of they loved having me around. And uh, within another year, um, kind of was in a coaching role and helping out officially. And at age 17, I was a part of my first national championship, um, ASA championship. So I was immediately in a program that my sister was recruited for. And it, that program was very similar to what I experienced at UCLA, which was about having a healthy culture and about uh, recruiting talent and having high standards. So um, I, I was very, very fortunate to be, like I said, around some great programs and great mentors and coaches that really understood um, what it meant to kind of build a successful program, a successful team. Right. So was, was... that was really my experience. And I wasn't playing or competing. I was really coaching. And, and when I came into UCLA two years after that, um, as a freshman, um, you know, I was kind of the same thing. I just got connected to the program and uh, was an undergraduate coach on full scholarship uh, by my second year. And uh, the kind of the rest was history. I didn't start competing as an athlete really competitively in softball until after I'd been coaching for a number of years. So I, I kind of came at it a little bit backwards. Yeah. Was, was softball as involved in, you know, were, were males involved in softball back then as they are now, or was it more of kind of a unique thing for, you know, a man to be a softball coach or to play softball or, you know, whatever it may be? No, I mean, staff pitch uh, has always been uh, a, a huge sport um, in terms of uh, across country. There's a high level of, of athletics, but obviously I didn't really play men's fast pitch. So I came into it from coaching. But, you know, at the at the level that I was coaching at the club level, there was a I mean, most of the coaches out there were were male. There was a lot of male coaches. And, and so being a male around the sport was not necessarily unusual. Um, from a coaching standpoint, but, uh, you know, when I, when I started at UCLA, there weren't as many male coaches at the collegiate level professionally okay. as there were women, but there were certainly plenty of men that were coaching high school and club ball, but just not necessarily at the collegiate level. Right. So you get to UCLA and what is, you know, what is kind of your, 
mindset in the sense of being with a program that's had such tremendous success kind of walk me through the culture of UCLA softball? Well, you know, it was uh, interesting because obviously um, in, in the beginning, uh, when I started, it was the fall of, of 1983. And uh, the first year that the NCA offered uh, became uh, an opportunity for women was 1982. So before wow. that, it had been AIAW. It wasn't an NCA recognized um, existence for women. So it was really not long after Title IX uh, in 1976 where we started to see a real change in women's athletics. So when I came in in 1983, uh, 1984 was my first season, it, it was a different environment. Obviously, the program at UCLA, they had won a national title in 1982, uh, and they had, had been a, a pretty dominant program. But college athletics was not a big deal, certainly on the women's side. There wasn't television. There wasn't ESPN covering events. Um, I didn't know anything about UCLA softball in particular because um, it just wasn't that big. There was there was not that many programs in the country and there was no media coverage for it. So um, so I didn't really know going in exactly what it was, but I, I've grown up around athletics. I've grown around competitive people. So when I started out with the program, I, I offered my services to come out to throw batting practice and be around and help in the fall. And that was a great opportunity. And I was around these great athletes. Um, one of the seniors on the team I had known, she was an umpire at my sister's uh, rec league, park league. So I'd known her as an athlete for a number of years and as an umpire. And then um, a couple of the players that were also going in as freshmen, I knew because I had coached uh, against them in club ball. So, uh, but I didn't have any expectation of what UCLA softball was going to be about. So for me, it was uh, being around the sport and kind of continuing to kind of feel like I could kind of build a network of people when I was here at this major university it was massive and big. And so it was kind of creating a, a family, creating an opportunity for me to kind of be helpful and be a part of something. And what I learned pretty quickly was, boy, these athletes are pretty amazing. But even more so, these coaches, Sharon Backus and Sue Inquist, are really just um, amazing athletes in their own right, but just incredible women, um, incredible coaches, uh, male or female, that, that really um, had such a great passion for the sport and, and success. So I, it was a, truly just an amazing, every day was a learning opportunity. So they asked me to, to adjust my schedule to travel with them that first year. So then I got to be on the road with them and, and be at you know, in the airport and talk with them and spend time with them and be around it. And I was able to be on the inside of conversations um, as a freshman that, um, you know, the athletes weren't privy to. So I was really kind of in the mix of things. And uh, by my second year, I was on full scholarship and completely working in the office every day. Um, as you said, you know, talking about recruiting and talking about developing budgets and team building. And I, I was kind of involved in all of that. And, and Sharon, um, I, I can't thank her enough for what she did for me, but, but created that opportunity for me to be involved in those conversations, not just to listen, but to be involved. And so I really um, was a part of something that was so special and, and, and grew and, and just became so addicted to um, coaching because it was such an amazing opportunity to just, to be a part of it and then to see it play out on the field and see these athletes really grow and foster. And we had some, some not great years, a couple of tough years in there, 
um, you know, 1985 was a really tough year, uh, most of the year. And then at the end of the year, we ended up turning it on strong and coming back and winning a national title. But um, I learned a lot that year about um, team dynamics and, and how people think and people operate and how people respond. So um, it's been, it was an amazing run during those 11 years when I was an undergrad and then when I was hired full time to really become a, such a student of the game. What is, what it, what is the biggest things that Sharon, that you learned from Sharon as far as coaching, as far as life, what is the one thing that she did that kind of separated her from other coaches? Well, she was a, a very unique individual um, and uh, someone that I just have so much respect for. And, and she really evolved during my 11 years when I coached with her. But a couple of things that I really stand out to me is, is having high standards. So she was very, very competitive. So she had a very high standard. And, and if somebody wasn't able to execute, you know, the, follow the team rules or the team policies, she had no problem removing them from the team or kind of, you know, disciplining them or just, it didn't matter if it was the best player or, or, you know, somebody that she cared about. Um, personally, she kept the standard in the program first. So I really learned first and foremost from her that the program comes first, that you, you can't ever sacrifice the program for uh, a, a personal uh, relationship or for, uh, you know, an athlete that may not be able to fully commit. So that was certainly a standard that I think was something I learned from her. But the other thing I learned from her was she was amazing at making sure that people around her felt valued. Um, she really took care of people. Like if she, there was someone up working on the field, she knew all the grounds people and she would, you know, bring them, uh, you know, a, a cherry pie. And she'd be like, I appreciate all the time you're doing and, and everything you're putting into the field. So she knew how to kind of grease the wheel, she used to call it, um, so to get things done. It wasn't just because she was just nice. She knew that people uh, would work harder if they felt a little bit more invested, if they felt like they were valued. And um, she was fantastic at that. Um, she did that as well for the players. I saw it more with the people that supported the program and around the program um, and that worked in the program more than it was just the players. So uh, it was something that I, I absolutely loved and it fit very well with my personality because I'm definitely a people person. And I think I've tried to live up to and, and create that same situation around programs that I'm a part of, which is make people feel valued. And, um, you know, sometimes you get more things accomplished when you're not screaming and yelling and, demanding, but, but asking nicely and appreciating when someone does something well and does something right, letting them know it. So um, I, those are a couple of things that I think for sure have been, been instilled with me from working with Sharon. Yeah, let, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more as far as valuing people. I, I think in society these days, I really think that it's kind of a lost art. You know, I think that we don't, we don't, we don't value people. We don't tell people how much we appreciate them you know and if it's a coach and a player you know sometimes we only get on them when they do something wrong and we don't let them know when they do something right so how did Sharon and how do you and you know how does how does Kelly and Lisa you know how do you guys value your players well you know I, I think every one of us is different as a coach um, and you you find your own kind of 
comfort level and where you need to be to have the most success. And sometimes you have to adjust how you are. You know, when I was an assistant, it was really different for me, <laughs> my interaction with the players. It was really easy because I was, I, I was never the bad guy. I was you know, throwing right. batting practice. I was hitting them extra ground balls. I was spending all kinds of time with them. I mean, whatever I need, whatever they needed, I was fulfilling it. And I was there playing cards with them. I was able to kind of be with them. And, and when I became a head coach, um, at Oregon State, after 11 years at UCLA, I thought, oh, this is going to be cool. Now it's going to be my program, and I'm going to do all the same things. <laughs> I got into the van the very first road trip and realized none of the players got into my van. And I'm like, okay, I always had the full van. Everyone always went to my van. Like, right. what's going on? And, and what obviously I, I learned pretty quickly is I'm the head coach. And so I'm viewed differently just because of my title. So um, I had to start to evolve and figure out how, how am I as a head coach. And so I became a yeller and screamer right away. And it, it felt like that's what I was supposed to do. <clears throat> and it, it didn't really fit really well with me. Um, so I, I kind of uh, still remained very passionate and keeping the standards high, but it became a little bit less of a yeller and much, uh, I saved the yelling um, for key opportunities rather than just on a daily basis. And uh, so I think you, you, you definitely figure out how to make sure that your players are engaged. Motivation is very simple. Motivation is getting your players to do something that you want them to do. So um, it doesn't matter how motivated I am. If my players aren't motivated to execute a drill or, or to, to come to practice engage, um, it's not my job to yell at them and demand it. I've got to figure out how, what is it that they get out of it? What is it that they value from being at practice? And how do I accentuate that so that I can get what I want done? Um, so you know, building motivation is just understanding people and what people value. And very simply, we already talked about it, people value uh, being appreciated. So somebody's always going to appreciate a smile versus, uh, you know, a frown. People are always going to appreciate a thank you versus a um, what's wrong or that's not good. Um, so it, it's kind of simple human nature. But um, I think sometimes we lose that because we take things for granted. And we take people for granted that they're always going to be feeling great and fully engaged. And uh, it's our job as leaders to make sure that people stay fully engaged and fully motivated. Yeah, you're, you're, you're just throwing out points and I'm just going off of them. I mean, when you talk about motivation, I mean, I, 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 love, I love that term. How do you keep players motivated how do you get them to come on the field every day and you know maybe not be bored or give you know they're all especially when you could mean maybe you're going through a five game losing streak or your star player just got injured or whatever it may be how do you keep them motivated and fresh throughout a season well yeah that's a great question and i sort of something i've evolved to and and uh, i also um I, I have two points on it so first of all what i've i've learned over time is is that, and as I kind of just described this, it's not necessarily, I may have to give up something that I need to accomplish to make sure that the team is still fully motivated. So that means, yeah, I, I want to practice for three hours, but you know what? I start losing my team in about two and a half. Guess what? It, that mm -hmm. extra half hour of practice, right. better off for me to keep that organized practice into two and a half hours and not allow a length of a practice to be a, a, a stumbling block for my athletes. Was Same that hard thing for with you just their... when you first started? 
Well, sure, but I because feel coaches I have that, trying to, that I, difficulty now. Right. Right. I, I mean, I felt like I knew what to, to, to win. I need to get them to this level. I've got to do this. We got to do this. We don't have time right. to do something easy. We don't have time to have a fun competition. We don't have time. We've got too much to accomplish, too much to accomplish. And that's where you learn very quickly as a, as a coach is like, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to get my athletes farther along if, if I'm making sure that they're in a good place and enjoying what they're doing and having success. Now that doesn't mean making it easy. Um, right. I was never a coach that was about making it easy or easing up on them, but I was always very sensitive to the fact of, Hey, if I know I need this drill to be done at this intensity level, then I've got to make sure I'm not expecting them to be at that intensity level for the full two hours. I've got to figure out how to build in some competition. Athletes love competition. And I think one of the things that we can do as coaches is, is make sure it doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's just bunting or if it's just, you know, a fly ball, uh, three flies up. Like you've got to be able to create some competition for them at some time, that period of time to keep them engaged. Um, and sometimes coaches are so focused on skill development that they stop um, creating one of the things that we love as athletes, which is to compete. Right. Um, the other thing is, you know, you, you've got to create opportunities that, that are fun. Um, and when I mean fun, it's like you can still be doing the sport and, and having a good time with it. So there can be times when you can have the radio playing or you can have the environment that is a little bit more loose because um, it fits with what you're doing at practice. And then there's times when, okay, now we're locking in and we're getting serious and we're, we're you know, turning off the, the radio and we're kind of locked in. So I think staying engaged with your athletes. I will tell you this. One of the things that I learned that I talk about a lot when I lecture on, on coaching female athletes and, and also motivating athletes is, you know, if you ask everyone on your team in the beginning of the year, ask them five things that they want to get from the year, right? We're, we're, we're haven't started the year yet. We haven't practiced one single time, but we're going to say, what are the five things that you as an athlete want to have happen for this year? What do you want to get out of this year? And if you ask them five things and you have each person write those down or put them on a piece of paper or whatever it might be, um, and you put them on a board, you're going to start to see some things very consistently. Um, and it doesn't matter what level we did this with the Olympic team back in 2000 or sorry, 96. And um, sorry, it was 2000 and 2004. We did it with the Olympic team. And it was amazing because even the sports psychologists who did this, it, it was astounding to me. And I talked to them about it afterwards. I, I thought for sure when you looked at, at this list that you were going to see um, everything was going to be about winning gold medals, winning the world championship. We wanted to do, you know, undefeated. I want to make, you know, all world, all of these accomplishments. And yes, winning the gold medal was in there probably more than anything else. Um, but what else was in there, what was right behind it and was just as powerful was have fun. And this is wow. the Olympic level athletes. This is the highest level athletes that we have in our sport. And it still was a predominant consistent across the board. Almost every single one of our athletes in one of their five was either have fun or get along with my teammates or enjoy the process. And it really became important for us as a coaching staff to realize that. So I started doing that with my team, my college team, and the same thing applied. And it was really pretty evident. And I just realized um, it's important. If we have, you know, the top five things that we want to accomplish on the year coming from the athletes, and a couple of those are about 
team culture or having fun, then it better be my priority as a coach um, to make sure that that's happening. Because if I don't, I'm going to shoot off my foot because I can't accomplish what I want, which is maybe some other things, winning and some other successful things, if they're not getting what they want. So that, that again, just kind of goes back to how do you motivate an athlete? You motivate an athlete by finding out what motivates them, what they're striving for, and then make sure that you can create that. Yeah, I, I, love, I love the part about fun. You know, when we're growing up and playing sports, our coaches always would tell us, you know, go out there and don't forget to have fun. You know, and as we get older, I think a lot of individuals are just like, yeah, 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 fun, whatever, whatever. You know, but I, I, I think it's really true that students athletes that they have fun you know because right. if they're not having fun you know why are they there so i think that's right and it's, it's too yeah it's an interesting thing because at some point in time uh, i mean obviously you know winning is is becomes a more and more of a focus and and the scoreboard and the outcome becomes more and more of a focus and listen i i'm the most competitive person there is and the most amount of fun i have is when when we're winning so i know that winning does solve a lot. Winning is fun. But I also know that winning alone doesn't necessarily automatically guarantee that everything's going to be fun. So I think, you know, Valerie Kondo's uh, icon at, at UCLA, you know, she talks about gratitude and, and really being being grateful for whatever situation is coming up. You know, if, if someone um, gets injured and we don't have them in the lineup, then you know what? I'm grateful that I've got people on the bench and the person that's getting on the bench is grateful for that opportunity. Nobody's happy that someone got hurt, but there's a way to be grateful for the opportunity, grateful for the challenge. Um, we're facing a team that's really, there's a lot better than us. We're getting beat, right? You talked about in a game, if you're on a five game skid, you, if you can break down the game to say, look, we have the opportunity to compete this inning right now. Let's win this inning. Let's be better this inning than we were last inning, and let's beat the team in this inning. So if, if the score is already one-sided and it's 11-0, we can say, fine, not send the pass, but right now we're in an inning. Let's win this inning. Can we win this inning? So getting them to start focusing on competing and having fun and being grateful for that opportunity to be on the field, be doing what they're doing, is something that is very powerful. So gratitude is something that you have to work at. And I think um, it's something that you have to instill in your athletes on a daily basis. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So UCLA, you were there as a student assistant, as an assistant, and then you get the job at Oregon State. What was your, you know, what was your mindset going into a head coaching position? Well, you know, it was, um, I had been a head coach um, right before that of, of a women's major team. And so I had been uh, already kind of experiencing life as a head coach. But, you know, for me, it was taking over a program that was really um, at the bottom of the country, right. not just the bottom of the Pac-10 the Pac at the time. Um, and so I knew that it was going to be important to kind of um, take what I had learned and be able to kind of make a difference. Honestly, when I took the job, I probably, uh, I probably assumed that I probably would have been there four years, maybe five years at the most, and that I would have moved on to a bigger job or a different job. Wow. And, and I think what it really started to happen was if you really kind of dive in and you, you're kind of instilling the things that you believe in and you're recruiting good talent and you're kind of building that culture of being grateful for what you have and fighting for more, but being grateful for what you have. 
um, you start to realize that um, it, it's pretty fun and it's pretty good. So we went from a really horrible program to the first year we actually beat a couple of ranked teams. The second year we beat a few more. The third year we started getting votes to be in the top 20. And by that, by that fourth year, we were ranked in the top 20 and never dropped out of the top 20 for the next nine years. So it really all of a sudden started to realize, look, we didn't have the best stadium. We didn't have the best weather. We didn't have the best things. And if I was focused on those things, what we didn't have and what Oregon state couldn't do and what we didn't have and all of the negatives, um, I would have been looking to leave because it would have been miserable. But I found myself really appreciating what I did have. And, and when I was recruiting athletes to come up, I could sell what Oregon State was great at. It was the people. It was the campus. It was the environment. It was the, the town. There was all these great things that I could be grateful for. And, and athletes, top athletes could, could sense that and could feel that. So for me, it was once again being focused on, um, you know, what Valerie Condos has really kind of really created as, as a lifeline for, for what perspective anybody should have, which is just gratitude for what you have, not what you don't. Right. I love that. Well, what is, I mean, obviously you talked about the facilities and maybe you didn't have the best field or, you know, the best locker room. What's the toughest part about building up a program, you know, taking a program that struggled for many years, you know, is it recruiting, you know, is it the athletic department? I mean, what, what is the toughest part about building a program? Well, you know, um, if I look back at it um, objectively and looking back, I mean, there was nothing but there was nothing but um, negatives. You know, right. they they had a, a disruptive athletic department. They didn't have a supported president. They had no field. They had very few scholarships. Their budget was horrible. I mean, they only had sal uh, salary for one coach. I mean, there was all these negatives. And 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 I guess even from when I took over the job, I knew. Whatever they had, I knew that I could help make a difference. And so I think the biggest thing for me was not getting caught in the traps of what I don't have. And it kind of goes back to that same thing. I, I was pushing and fighting every day I went in that athletic department for something more. I need another half scholarship. Can I get um, a money for an increase for my pitching machine? Can I do a fundraiser to this? And what I found was, that everyone was very supportive of helping because I was coming with um, not just an ask, just with a handout, but I was coming out with um, an energy and a willingness to work for whatever else we needed. Um, and so it wasn't just me asking. So if I were to recommend this to anybody that's taking over a program or trying to build a program is um, before you put your hand out and ask for something more from somebody from your boss or from someone else, um, figure out what I can do to kind of better the situation I'm in or what can I do to help my athletic director or my boss, um, you know, fulfill what I need to have and what ultimately I have. So having a vision is great, but if that vision is, is keeping you from being focused on where you're, where you are and where you're going, then you're going to have a hard time and you're not going to be very happy. But recruiting, recruiting is the name of the game at the division one level. So if you don't recruit, um, you're you're gonna struggle, and so those first couple of years, we yeah, we were more successful. We had more wins. We beat some top twenty teams. Those were all great things with the existing talent that had been there that hadn't had 
you know, consecutive losing seasons for 20 years. But it was when recruits started to come in that we really started to elevate the program with the same work ethic, the same program, the same standards that we had, even when we didn't have the talent. So that's where I go back to saying we had a winning culture my first couple of years there, my first two years there, but we didn't have a winning season until year three. But the difference wasn't necessarily the culture changed. The difference was we started adding in higher and higher level talent to that culture. And, and that, that allowed for greater and greater success. Right. So, you know, you talked about, I love this quote by Jimmy Johnson, build the team you want to coach. So, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it harder, well, let me rephrase that. When you're recruiting people as far as when you're at Oregon State, you know, they didn't have a winning culture, is it more important to you to recruit the better person so you can kind of create that culture rather than, you know, maybe getting a huge, you know, a talented, one of the most talented girls in the country and she doesn't have the best you know, maybe you want, I don't know if you want to use the word morals or attitude or whatever, you know, that may be. Well, you know, it's um, obviously, uh, there's a, there's kind of a combination. Obviously you want to recruit the best athlete you can that you believe will have success in your, in your program. Um, but I, I will tell you this, um, it, it, it is, it is challenging sometimes when you are working with young adults um, to expect everyone to always be perfect and always make all the good decisions. You know, we, we would be out recruiting and we would oftentimes hear from club coaches or travel ball coaches that a certain athlete was, Oh, you don't want her. She's got a bad attitude right. or, or she's stubborn or she's hard to work with. Um, and uh, one thing that I learned pretty quickly is um, had we listened to that without really kind of getting to know that person on our own, um, we would have missed out on a four-time All-American that was uh, an amazing part of our program and, and three, uh, two national titles. So um, I think you, you want to make good decisions, but I think you also want to know um, a little bit more than about the athlete than maybe just their reputation. So, but uh, saying that, you know, uh, the, your, your intangibles, the, you know, the morals and, and the, the good decision-making and, and good character are always going to be important because ultimately you're only going to be as good as your character level will allow. Um, mm -hmm. So I think people that have building blocks for those characteristics that you're looking for, absolutely important. That they've fully developed them and fully owned them, that may not have happened yet for some 17, uh, 16, 17 year old. So um, I, have, I have made mistakes in recruiting and I've had to, once again, commit to the program first and had to remove an athlete uh, from my program because it, it wasn't a good fit for the program. And, and I also had to um, renege on a scholarship and, and, and kind of take a scholarship away because an athlete um, through repeated, you know, situations was making bad decisions and I just said I can't jeopardize the program for one athlete so I certainly have done that um, but at the same time I like to think that our job is to develop character and instill character not just to recruit it right so when you said oh, I love this too when you said that you're not 
if your character is not good, then you can't be, you know, the best player, of course, paraphrasing. So, you know, what, what would you say to a player that just says, you know, I'm talented enough, so why does my character even matter? You know, if I go four for four, if I strike out 15 people, if, you know, I throw five touchdowns, you know, and, and their attitude, you know, could suck, you know, what would you, what would you say to those people that believe that it's talent and then it's characteristic? Well, you know, um, you know, talent alone is not enough. And, you know, obviously there's, there's a great book that's titled by that talent is not enough. Um, and I think that the basis for that book is spot on, which is the issue of, you know, the talent is, is going to be paramount skill is very, very important. But when you put two talented people together side by side and they're competing against each other, um, the, the one that, that is going to, um, most likely thrive and consistently win is the one that's going to be able to handle pressure and make good decisions and be able to manage some of the character flaws uh, or some of the characters challenges that come at them. So if I have a character flaw, it's, it's going to show up. Um, Sharon used to also say that, um, you know, pressure is a privilege um, that we get to have. And, and when you put pressure on an object like an orange, what, when you push on it, what comes out is what's already in there. So under pressure, whatever your flaws are, they will be revealed when in the most pressure-filled situations occur, whether that be internally with a team issue or that comes to a competition. So if there is a flaw in you, um, it is most likely going to be revealed when the most important time, in the most critical times. So. It, it, you can say, an athlete can say, it doesn't matter, I can do this and this, and say, well, at the end of the day, uh, I, need to be, I need to be able to trust and know, and your teammates need to be able to trust and know that you will perform and you will be able to be at your best when your best is called upon. And that requires uh, mental toughness. That requires an ability to make good decisions. So those are the things that, that we're going to focus on instilling. And um, you can't ever... Um, you can't ever sacrifice those things and expect to win. So you can take an athlete that, that, as I said, you may have an athlete that, that kind of has a reputation and may not have always been, you know, the, the best teammate and best person around. Um, but if they have the building blocks in them and they can understand in your teaching and in your development, why it's important. Um, oftentimes those become your really strong character people that really kind of, sell the sell the message to the program which is it really is important so um i i can't tell you other than um what you're going to say to a specific athlete that, that wants to argue that other than right um success has come over time for those people that have great character you don't see a lot of great people going into the hall of fame that have a lot of character flaws yeah so um, I, I love that the hall of fame the hall of fame numbers get you on the ballot but hall of fame uh, character is what gets you in there. Wow. I love the pressure. Pressure is a privilege. And I, I'm trying to, I, I know what it means and I'm trying to wrap my head around it, but it don't, I mean, isn't that such a powerful quote? Pressure is a privilege. You know, it's almost like saying, well, cause there, if you're, here's the deal. If you're not talented, right. then there is no pressure. You're not good. <laughs> right. You're playing somebody better. There's no pressure. So pressure is a privilege because my ability to, to be in a pressure filled moment 
means that I, I am privileged with talent and I'm privileged with opportunity. So if, if I don't have talent, I'm, I'm not privileged with it. I don't have pressure. If I'm not put myself in a, in a, in a team environment, that's going to be in a winning situation to be in a big game. Um, I'm not going to get pressure. So does that mean that, that you can only feel pressure when you're talented? No, but, the more talent level you go and the higher level you play, uh, the more you challenge yourself as an athlete, the more pressure you're going to um, kind of potentially be in. And, you know, and how we respond under pressure is, is really the difference between champions and everyone else. You know, uh, it's an interesting thing because people, people that haven't won talk about, oh, there's more pressure in this game or this, this is, you know, that now you're in the college world series. So this game has more pressure. There's more on it. And you start to go, no, there's really not. The game is the same. And the pressure that's there is a privilege. And if I think about it as a privilege, then it's just the game. And then I just play the game. I don't, I don't give the pressure more credence than it deserves. Um, Cause it doesn't change the game. The game is still the game. So that's why, Pressure is a privilege that I get to be involved in, and I never let the pressure become such a big part of the moment that it affects how I play the game. Is that why you think UCLA is, is so successful every single year? I mean, when you come into a season, you may have, you know, the first meeting, and, you know, you know that you're going to be ranked, you know, every, you know, for the most part, every year that, that comes around. And you know that there is, you know, quote unquote pressure on that program. Do your, do your Bruins, you know, do they really kind of embrace that pressure knowing that, you know, everyone's out, out to get us, you know, we're the best. And, and that's just kind of how it, that's just how the culture is. You know, that's just how it is. Well, 100, 100%. And I think that um, in the recruiting process, an athlete doesn't choose to go to UCLA. And I'm going to give you a couple of things. They don't choose to go to UCLA unless they are somebody that is wanting that privilege of the pressure. And I'm not just talking about on the field. You're going to step in the, you're an athlete, student athlete. You're going to step in the classroom with an average GPA of incoming freshman. That's 4.2. Wow. (laughs) So, if you're not a 4.0 student, and even if you are, you're going academically saying, I'm accepting the challenge to be not only pressured and challenged on the field, but in the classroom. And then socially, you know, you are in the heart of LA, you've got all kinds of media and, and attention uh, on UCLA, you've got, you know, people on campus that are you know, winning Nobel prizes and are, you know, just doing major things in every industry that there is. Um, so if you're not willing to, to risk and feel that pressure as an opportunity, you're not going to thrive or do well at UCLA. And that's before you even step on the field or sign a letter of intent. So the athletes that, that come into UCLA are very, very clear that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be, um, a cakewalk in any aspect of their life, but it is going to also be potentially the best four years of their lives. If they understand that pressure is privilege, pressure in the classroom, the pressure socially, the pressure of the media, the pressure of, of the excellence that exists 
in the Hall of Fame at UCLA before you ever even put on a jersey? And who wore that number before you? Um, not only on the softball field, but, you know, in any sport. So we love that. Um, because now if I step on the field in the sport of softball and we just look in our bubble of softball, man, yeah, UCLA softball is one more championships than anyone else. And there's a lot of pressure and we are going to have a target on our back and everybody wants to beat UCLA. But the athletes that are choosing to come here are already accepting that kind of pressure, um, which is a privilege on, in every aspect of, of their lives that are going to be happening. Uh, and it's hard, um, but it is also extremely rewarding. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think, you know, it's, you know, when an athlete comes to UCLA, there's so much other stuff that UCLA surrounds, you know, that even without athletics, like you said, a 4.2 GPA, I mean, how, how would a freshman, you know, go into that situation where it's just like, freshman average 4.2 GPA? You know, I mean, it's it's really a great concept, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I never thought about it that way, and I don't think a lot of people think about it that way. They only think about the athletic part, and they don't think about everything else that happens on a campus like UCLA. And and that's exactly why it it, it is not necessarily only about what happens in one aspect of their life. When you, when you are looking and making decisions about where you want to go to school, you know, there are some people that, that they're not it's not that they're not academically prepared. It's there's some people that don't, that are not prepared for the pressure of that. And, and they don't want to experience that. And we often say, you know what, if, if they don't want that pressure, if they're not looking for that pressure, then they might not be a really good fit for us. And they might be a wonderful athlete and they might be an all American and they might win a national title somewhere else, but they might not necessarily be a fit for us here at UCLA. So we want athletes that want to thrive in those situations and want to be challenged and, and want that privilege of the pressure. And um, because it, it's also, in my opinion, where the greatest amount of reward and greatest amount of joy and greatest amount of accomplishment, um, it's an opportunity. It's nothing but an opportunity in front of you. Yeah. So on the lines of pressure, do you believe in failure? You know, because Oprah has this great quote, she says, you know, there's really no such thing as failure. You know, failure is just kind of that thing, you know, life, if you want to put it that way, that just kind of moves us in another direction. Do you believe in failure as a coach? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think you have to, you have to, I understand her quote and I believe full heartedly in what she's saying, but there is failure. The issue is, is how we process failure. So, Mm. you know, if, if I get something wrong, it's a failure and that's, and that's okay. Right. As long as I don't repeat that mistake and as long as I don't allow it to um, defeat me or create a situation that that I am negatively impacted. So champions fail far more than successful individuals. People that win gold medals, I guarantee people that win gold medals fail far more in their life than somebody that stopped playing when they were in high school. Because every time you are competing, every time you are stepping out to train, every day you are attempting to get better and pushing yourself, there is failure built in every single moment. The issue is, is, and this is where I believe Oprah's quote is all about, and I fully believe it, and many other people that believe the same thing, there is no failure if I don't, you know, learn from it. But 
it's how I respond to failure. Failure is fuel for champions because I don't get better by just winning. I never get better because that was easy and I beat somebody. I only get better when I am having challenges or obstacles or difficulties, if you don't want to call them failures. I have no problem with the word failures. My issue is, is don't be afraid of what failure is. Um, use your challenges, use those obstacles to get better or move forward. And then you don't necessarily have to, ultimately, it's not a failure. It's just an opportunity. So failure, opportunity, obstacle, whatever it may be called, it, it doesn't really matter um, as long as you know how to process that and how you don't let it affect you. What is or your, how you do let it affect you. So, yeah. Right. What is your take on, you know, the, the big thing about millennials is people say that they don't deal with adversity well. You know, um, if they're not good at this job, they're just going to quit and go to another job or, you know, whatever it may be, whether it's in sport or in life, you know, what is your, what is your opinion on, you know, this generation dealing with adversity and failure? Well, I don't know that I, um, I don't know that I like to think that it's only this generation, Mm -hmm. but I do think that. Um, but I do understand the, the point and the observation. It, it, there is so much opportunity to, there's so much opportunity in the world today um, with the technology that exists, with the access to information that exists, the, ac- the access to, um, you know, social media and, and the internet. I mean, all of it. There's so much opportunity that it's very easy when you do have quote unquote failure or obstacles to to translate to something else rather than to say failed at this let me learn from it and move forward so i think that there are still people in the millennial generations that are very committed to what they want and very focused on what they want and the, and they stay can stay committed to it i think there's also a lot in this generation that have so much opportunity and so much information that when they have failure or they have some obstacle in front of them, they have opportunity to go a different direction. Um, They can choose to go a different direction. And that, that can, once again, that goes back to saying that everything is a failure. (laughs) Um, So every failure redirects them to a new direction rather than learning and getting better. Right. So, so how, does, how, does somebody, how does somebody see it that way? And I know that, that, you know, that's kind of a big, you know, a big question, you know, a big psychological question, if you might want to ask, but how does someone truly see every single, you know, quote unquote failure as just kind of life moving us in another direction? Because not everyone sees it that way. And I think that's what separates, you know, not only people, that achieve high, you know, not necessarily meeting, making millions of dollars, but they're just content with their, with their life, you know, and athletes that reach a high performance, you know, so how, how does someone actually take in that meaning? Well, I, I think that that's, um, for us, I know for me as a, as a coach, um, that has always been, that's my lesson on a daily basis. That's my ability to teach on a daily basis 
it's not whether I teach the backhand better, it's whether I can teach an athlete or help an athlete learn how to process their failure. So mm. athletics is, is our greatest classroom. So our coaches um, and our parents are oftentimes the individuals that are most, well, I say teachers, coaches, and parents are the most influential people because they're around young people when they are going to have the most opportunity to fail. And if they're instilling and encouraging a mindset and an opportunity that, and how to view failure, then, then they're creating um, the building blocks for what an individual needs to have. If they are not doing those things, and that's, that's where it becomes important when you have parents that aren't necessarily um, helping kids process with, or they're trying to make everything too easy for them. I want my kid's life to be better than mine, so I'm going to make sure they have everything they need and that everything's easy. Well, that's wonderful in concept, but it may not be preparing them for them to be able to be successful when something doesn't go right. And so it's not that you want to create failure or you want to create challenges, but sometimes we want to, as parents, we want to make sure that we don't make things too easy and that sometimes the hard, the hard way of learning um, is the best way of learning. So uh, from a parent, a teacher, or a coach's standpoint, those are the greatest areas of uh, life lessons that right. we need that, to instill. Right. And that kind of, and always, too, go ahead. And too many times it, it's not happening until they become in the employment world and they're in the professional world. And that's not a great place to learn because guess what? Your boss, they're not your teacher. Your boss is your boss. And so these are the things that we are understanding is that many millennials, just many people that are not necessarily being challenged and, and learning how to process failure and how to process those things that happen, the challenges, when they are in school or in sports, when they are moving into the real world and they haven't developed that skill, then they're just going to continue to quit or get fired every time something's hard. And that's not going to lead to a, probably a lot of success uh, until at some point in time that individual decides, no, this is what I want, and I'm going to figure out how to be successful. And that, when somebody finds that passion and finds that, that, that mission and that opportunity, then boy, look out. But until then, they're often kind of going to say, nope, it's too hard. I'm going to try a different. I'm going to, I don't like my boss. I'm going to quit. I don't like my coworker. They're hard to work with. Um, I don't enjoy it. Therefore, I'm just going to try something else or I'm going to go another direction. Um, right. And that's just not a healthy way for um, us to develop successful people. Right. And I, and I think that goes along the lines of, you know, participation trophies. And I, I mean, I, I don't understand where it came from, you know, and, and like you said, it's not necessarily, you know, a bad thing that millennials may have all this opportunity. But I think it's definitely interesting how, you know, people are able to separate themselves and realize that, you know, what a failure is really just an opportunity, like you said. What is the biggest, what's the biggest adjustment or, you know, what's the biggest difference from when you were first coaching at UCLA until now, as far as the athletes, what's the biggest difference between the two groups? If there is really any difference. 
Uh, you know, I don't know that there's as big a difference between the athletes as much as people have sometimes postulated. Um, to me, I think the things that are the same about athletes today is then is that athletes, by and large, they want to um, they want to compete. They want to. Everyone wants to have fun. Everyone wants to to be um, feel valued, and everyone wants to be um, a part of something bigger than than what they're that they're you know, on their own. So I think those things are the consistent things. Now, how they process feedback, how they process, how they learn, how they, um, you know, kind of deal with failure. Those are things that are all very different, but I think athletes are the same. I think, um, in terms of at the core, what, what athletes really want, why are you playing sports? Um, I think people still play sports because for the love of, of competing. And I think the, the difference is there's a lot of other outside forces, media, parents, scholarships um, that really kind of come into play that kind of distract an athlete from, a, from really what at the core has really why they played sports to begin with. So that to me is the biggest thing is there's far more outside forces that distract an athlete away from what they really um truly are the most important things to them right and and that leads perfectly into my next question and revolving the environment in college sports now you know i i hear and it is sad but i hear people saying that the term student athlete is really you know it, it's not enforced as much anymore it's it's basically athlete student uh, what is what is your take on the environment in college sports right now you know you see we a, a lot of recruiting violations you know a lot of scandals a lot of you know maybe suspension of players you know so what, what's kind of your opinion on college sports right now well you know um i mean there's certainly a number of ways to look at it first of all i think um I think there probably were as many violations previously as there were today mm -hmm. um, relative to the number of programs and opportunities. But I, I think that with, I think there's far more checks and balances and there's more social media that, that more things are going to be caught. So I think right. more things are discussed and more things are shared and more things are talked about than ever before. But I think there are more forces at play at the higher level of, certainly with football and basketball, but it's, it's coming across in many sports, you know, uh, coaches salary and, and winning and, and opportunity for success really has uh, continued to be escalated. Um, I think more, more than just at the top level, I think more just across all levels so that, you know, success, the desire for success really becomes really financially um, lucrative. And I think that's that's a very um, very difficult thing to deny um, today in sports. But I also would venture to say I think there's probably just as much focus on student athletes as ever before. But I don't think those are the the levels of sport that always draw the interest. So I think we hear more about the infractions. We don't hear about a lot of infractions happening at the D two and and D three right. level, and that's right. where. And that's where most of the student athletes are probably in the country. So to say that there's more focus on athletics than on being a student, um, 
that might only be in where the high profile situations are. And it's certainly, as, I could, as I've said to you earlier, is that um, that's not happening at, at institutions where academics are, are highly stressed or not really an option to right. be lessened or made easier. So um, I think we have to be, we have to be careful of, of making those broad strokes statements um, and applying them across the board. I do think that situationally, and certainly in some key uh, locations, there are still people making bad decisions. Um, the situation, obviously, at Ohio State, um, I, I, I think that's a decision that probably was made many, many times over in the last 50 years by coaches. Um, but I don't think it was covered in the media. I don't think it was um, you know, a standard that was expected uh, in society to the same extent. So I think once again, um, I don't think that's a new occurrence. I just think it's much more uh, publicized and much more prevalent of, in the media. Do, is, do you talk to your Bruins or even as a coaching staff about, you know, whether it's recruiting rules or, you know, if you saw something in the media or, you know, whatever it may be, do you talk about it more as a coaching staff and with your team now than you did before, you know, kind of doing like what you said, the checks and balances, like letting them know, like, Hey, like don't post this kind of stuff, you know, and follow the rules. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, I think the conversations have always, I mean, once again, I think our, our opportunity to be educators and to be helping um, young adults develop into being the best that they can be by the time they leave, or at least on the right track that we have to take advantage of every one of those opportunities whenever it occurred. And that was before today or in the future. I think just as I talked about, there are more external forces than ever before. I think that there are things that student athletes have to deal with today that they didn't have to deal with 20 years ago and right. with social media and with um, just media coverage and with, you know, news sites and news cycles. And so there's certainly far more things for us to be discussing, but, I don't know that it's necessarily that we talk about them now and we didn't talk about them before. I think if they are a factor in their lives, it's important for us to be addressing it. And so we don't know in 20 years, what is it that is going to be a, an obstacle for a student athlete in 20 years? We don't know. Right. We don't know what technology is going to be bringing, but there's going to be something because there's going to always be something. So it's always going to be a learning opportunity for us as coaches. Um, to stay um, in tune with what's going on in the in the world and what's going on in the world of athletics, it's important because if we're ignorant to those things, how can I help my athletes who are young adults trying to get you know prepared to be successful in the real world? How do I help them if I'm not really fully savvy with what's going on? So, you know, coaches that say, "Oh, I don't you know I don't do social media and I don't follow and I don't well, okay." You may not partake in it, but you better be very savvy with what's going on out there because your uh, mentor, mentees underneath you um, are dealing with it. And so if you're going to make them um, be successful and you're going to help prepare them to be to navigate the world that's in front of them, you better be prepared to, to deal with it or have somebody on your staff that will. All right. Wow. It, it really is true these days. I mean, we kind of talk about you know, the media or whoever it may be may talk about athletes doing this and breaking the rules. And, you know, I don't think people really kind of take a step back and say, well, look at all this stuff that athletes have to deal with. 
You know, I mean, it's not, how can you not get frustrated as an athlete, you know, seeing people talk about you or, you know, and so I, I really think that's a good point, how you, how you made that point. Um, so, you know, transitioning again, what did it feel like to be the, one of the first gay males to be in, in college sports? Well, um, you know, I, um, when I ended up coming out, I couldn't have probably said that I thought I was the only one I knew there weren't, I didn't really know of any one in particular, but so I wasn't really aware when I actually came out that it, what I was kind of walking into. Um, and in some ways, obviously I did because there was not a lot of examples in front of me, but I discovered, I think pretty quickly within the first couple of years, um, what it, what it really meant to me and what it really felt like, because in those first two years, um, in all those articles that I did and, and when I would be asked questions, I was really frustrated because I was being labeled the gay coach. And, um, and I wasn't necessarily ashamed of that fact. I just right. was, um, I was frustrated that my career had been, my career had been kind of minimized down to that one right. fact. And it's not that that fact was a bad thing. It's just like, okay, well, that's one fact. So it wasn't after, it wasn't until after a couple of years and, and probably maybe after about a year or so, I don't remember exactly what point, but there was definitely a light bulb that kind of went off for me to start to realize, okay, it doesn't really matter what they call me. Clearly it's, it's resonating and sending a message. And the media was very different back then. Obviously the news cycle was much longer back then. You know, if, if a coach comes out now, it's news for, you know, less than 24 hours and then move on. It's like, it's just not news. Back then, you know, it was a news cycle for quite a while and it, and it kept growing and it got bigger. And so that's when I started to realize, I think, what it meant to kind of be the first or one of the first. I mean, uh, I wasn't the first, but the, the media labeled me as the first publicly out um, Division One coach. And so I, I kind of, once again, decided I'm going to own that mantle and I'm going to take it. And so I, I don't. I don't shy away from that fact. And I think um, I, I have great um, appreciation for that opportunity that I had. And I still have to be able to have a platform to make a difference. So for me, again, it's not a challenge. It's not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. And I appreciate that opportunity. And um, it doesn't necessarily define me. And it won't define me in the end. But it will be something that um, I can help make a difference and I can uh, create a better situation for someone else um, by the fact that I don't shy away from that opportunity. Right. What, what do you think? I don't want to use the word improve, but what do you think LGBT and sports, when you put those two things together, what do you think is the biggest? way to you know maybe improve the visibility or you know i might not be using the right word but you know what's kind of your take on that well i think the i think the biggest message that um can be um and the biggest message and the most important thing at this point in time visibility is important and the reason why i believe that's important in athletics particularly is that 
we are in the business, as I've said several times on my answers, we are in the business of um, developing young adults to be successful as they move forward and understanding and training them to be um, responsible for their actions, to take integrity, to have the integrity to, um, to say what they've done and, and take responsibility and um, just to make those hard decisions. Um, I think that is where um, the discussion and the dialogue about being LGBT in sports is really important and powerful because if we have coaches that are failing to um, discuss or talk about whether they might be out or not or their sexuality, then there's a there's a disconnect because it, it's a reality. There are there are gay individuals in every sport at every level on probably virtually any team that's out there, right. and yet it's still an invisible issue. So. Um, it's not that everybody needs to run around and put, you know, rainbow flags on their forehead to identify, but the integrity to be who you are and to be fully comfortable in who you are and be true to your your identity and be true to be the best self that you can be um, also means owning up who you are and, and not necessarily um, trying to hide things. So there's, there should be nothing embarrassing or negative about being LGBT, but um, obviously society still kind of creates um, the norm, and it will always be this case, is, is that most people in the country are straight. That's just a fact. We are a minority. We're not a majority. Um, so even if everybody that was LGBT came out today, we would still be a minority. We would just be not invisible. We would be a visible minority, um, but we will always be a minority. So I think we have to do a better job at a younger age of making sure that um, before athletes or, or young adults kind of have really had to struggle through things that, that it's not a stigmatism. It's not necessarily a negative. It's just the reality of who you might be. And, and, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, everyone, finds their their ability and their strength to be honest with themselves and be true to themselves. And that's what we would hope every one of our young adults is learning how to do is, is to be true to who they are and be the best person that they can be. Um, and being LGBT in no way, shape or form will restrict you from being the most quality individual that you can be as a human being. Vice President Joe Biden said, people reward you for authenticity. What, what does that quote mean to you? Well, I, I, think, um, I think authenticity or being authentic is, is really the most powerful thing that you can do um, because it, it goes to the core of uh, confidence. Um, not necessarily bravado, not necessarily arrogance, but confidence. Right. So, I think if you can truly be authentic and be comfortable in who you are and be proud of who you are and what you do and the good things that you do, um, then people reward that by, by respect. something that's very, very positive. It's very, very um, attractive to people um, because that kind of confidence um, is something that, that everyone strives for. Every individual that, that I've ever known, even those that are the most arrogant or have huge bravado, um, have insecurities and have doubts and have fears, like everybody. 
And most of those are hidden for decades or, or they hide them for their whole lives. So if, if somebody is really being authentic, um, then they're not really hiding those things. They're just, they're celebrating who they are. They're owning their strengths. They're owning their weaknesses and they're, um, focused on being the best that they can be. And I think that's really, really, um, all we can ask, the most we can ask and the highest level of respect we can give is when somebody's doing that. All right, just a few more questions. Finish this statement for me. My greatest skill as a coach is? Uh, my greatest skill as a coach is um, in uh, dealing with people and managing people. Mm. Social media? Social media is um, an opportunity to have uh, influence and a trap um, to build your ego. Wow. What do you mean? What do you kind of explain the build your ego part? Well, when social media is used to try and build your self-esteem by how many likes I have or who looks at what I've stuff or who, you know, how many of this or then if that's what I'm basing my ego on, then that's a trap that is going to, to um, really be a, a negative problem. So that's, that's where the negative is with social media. Social media, the, the positive and the opportunity is, is clearly about the ability to um, communicate with a larger audience. And to me, that's about influence and being able, able to share positive influence. Right, so but, you would say self-esteem is different from ego. Well, I think, I think they're, they're very similar. I think when it comes to social media, if my self-esteem is based on social media, um, then yeah, that's going to be a problem. And that's, that's my self-esteem is my way of trying to build up my self-esteem to, to have an ego. You know what I mean? There's, I think they're very, they're very yin and yang. They're very kind of next to each other. Right. Right. When my mind is racing, I do what? When my mind is racing, I do, I, um, <laughs> oh gosh, when my mind is racing, I probably, um, I probably over communicate. Mm, explain that. Um, when my mind when is racing, I try or just to get your thoughts out of your head. Uh, I just, I think I'm trying to, um, trying to accomplish a lot. And I think sometimes my mind is working faster than my mouth can keep up. Um, and, uh, so I find myself, um, yeah, needing to step back and think more about my words and my message before I speak. Got it. I would tell my younger self this. Um, being unique is, um, a, blessing mm, right i love that because really if you know i'm born in original so why would i ever want to be somebody else i love that and the last question living a gold medal life looks like um integrity uh, empathy and commitment in that order? Uh, I, I don't know that there's any one order to that. I think they're, they're all very important. Um, mm -hmm. 
to being the best that you can be. And that to me is, is gold medal. Wow. Whether you ever get a gold medal or not. Right. Right. Wow. Kirk, thank you so much. This was, this was amazing. Yeah. And you, I mean, the insight that you have, I mean, there's so many quotable moments or as Oprah says, aha moments. And it, it really was a joy to talk to you. All right. Appreciate it, Andre. And good luck with all of it.